listening to Venture in the South, 30 minutes of conversation with startup founders, investors, and your hosts exploring the robust startup economy in the Southern U.S. Join us to make money, have fun, and do good. Welcome to Venture in the South, a podcast about angel investing in the Southeastern United States. This week, I have the great pleasure of talking with John Dillard. John is the CEO of a former now portfolio company, Adventure South, Threat Switch out of Charlotte. And we're going to explore a little bit today about John's journey raising money from angel investors and in an unusual turn of events, returning money to angel investors with a successful exit from the company. So John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. Great to talk. But I wanted to at least give new listeners just a quick chance to hear the 30 second introduction to what John has been doing. So John, I'll turn it over to you for that. Sure. Well, to make a very, very long story short, <laughs> I founded ThreadSwitch back in really went to market in early 2017. And we were a software company focused on security compliance. So very large companies, highly regulated, lots of defense contractors, things like that, that are subject to security controls. And our platform, straight SaaS platform, software product that helped them navigate both how to become compliant with those things, manage the processes associated with it, and reduce risk for the their enterprises. So that's how we got here and met Venture South along the way. And you guys led our first price round. And back then list the list last year in July, we exited to a private equity backed roll-up. So that's the short story. Great. Yes, we invested in 2018 in ThreatSwitch the first time. And our goal when we invest is to try to find ways to exit in three to five years' time, five to seven years' time, maybe in reality. And in ThreatSwitch's case, in, in almost exactly four years, then there was a, an exit event for our investors, which is great. We don't have too many entrepreneurs actually in the Southeast that have been through that process and not too many in the Venture South portfolio, though there are a few. So I wanted to explore with you a little bit about what that process meant. But before we get into the exit, maybe just at a very high level, did Threat Switch go according to plan when you were uh, building it? That, nothing really goes according <laughs> to plan, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, it's interesting you asked that. I mean, in terms of overall vector, right? We started a company, SaaS company. We intended to be venture backed. We intended to exit within five years. So from that perspective, things happened the way yeah, that right. we thought they would. I think there are a lot of little things that dramatically changed what we expected along the way. We thought we were going to be a mostly SMB and middle market firm. We got pulled in enterprise fairly early. You know, we expected to go through BNC institutional funding, and that ended up getting, you know, changed into a, a private equity backed roll up, still a growth equity investment. I mean, not a, not a strategic PE backed by. So that was different. You know, we, had a lot of little things that changed the trajectory, but overall, I mean, it went pretty according to plan. Now that said, you know, there are some things that went much better than expected. I mentioned the, the enterprise customer thing. We thought that we'd have small businesses. The cool thing about shifting into large businesses is it gave us so much more focus. And that in part was something that happened after your initial round with us when we assembled the board and got a couple of really competent board members in the mix who helped us make that choice, right? So just look, enterprise is working. So double down on the enterprise sales strategy, and that really contributed to significant growth for us. So that went better than expected. The thing that was worse for me, I, I think it's probably worse for everybody. Fundraising is hard when you focus on a niche and you have a complex product. 
And fortunately, there were some folks affiliated with Venture South and Adventure South who had, had some exposure to the kind of work we were trying to do. But for a lot of companies that are out raising money, if you sell something that isn't immediately understandable by an investor, it's kind of hard to raise. And, and for a good reason. Like if I'm an investor, I don't want to invest in things that I don't deeply understand. And there just aren't that many people who deeply understand security compliance. Mm-hmm. So it takes a lot of work to find that that set of investors, which I knew would be hard, but I still somehow underestimated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Overall, the big picture is things did go mostly according to plan and in terms of big picture. And COVID was in the way. So that was also oh, obviously yeah, through a spanner in the in the works as well, right? Yeah. Um, although for us, interestingly, and a lot of SaaS companies too, it actually helped us in some ways. We were virtual to begin with. So we didn't have an office space to worry about. So it wasn't too, too bad other than scaring the daylights at everybody um, and definitely pausing sales for a couple quarters because nobody wanted to, to really invest in anything. But yeah, we weathered all of that, which was nice. Yeah. Well, congratulations. In that context of things mostly going according to plan, then was the plan to get acquired when you did? And how did that come about? No, not really at all. <laughs> so uh, we were, you know, I think you, you and I talked about this at length. We entered the year, this is last year, 2022, fully expecting to do a, an institutional round. And that was the plan going in. And I think like a lot of relatively successful startups that are making progress and growing, and there's good word of mouth, I got emails from private equity firms like uh, four times a week. I mean, it was crazy. They're a very active private equity community, the vast majority of which I just would have never sniffed at. Um, in many cases, it would have been a very bad idea. And I still think in many cases, it's a pretty bad idea for, for a lot of startups to go the private equity route. We happened to get connected with one through a channel partner, really, who was a focused on growth equity as opposed to sort of cut and burn equity. It was a roll-up situation, not a strategic, and really just everything lined up in a way that was surprising and, and unexpected. And so as we're raising in 22, PSG approaches, which is the private equity firm behind what is now Sign Solutions, which is the company we're part of. And it just uh, was a fit on a lot of fronts uh, because it was a roll-up, because it was a growth investment, because I trusted the leadership of that private equity firm, which that's important. <laughs> <laughs> and not always easily found. So yeah, it was really quite unexpected. And it was a tough, really tough decision to, to, to make the call to do that rather than, than going down the institutional funding round path. So what were the factors that influenced your decision to, to do that? You know, you've outlined some of them. It was a, you know, a good potential opportunity, but what was it that pushed you over the edge to actually go ahead and spend a lot of time engaging with that oh, yeah. opportunity? I think if it had not been a roll-up, in which I felt like the other side of it was still startup tech. I mean, really, we are still startup tech. You know, we just happen to have more money in our bank account and more leadership and help. I mean, but you know, really, it's still a combination of companies that are all fast-moving young companies that are you know now together working toward. So that was huge, which I think makes a cultural difference. It makes a sort of trajectory difference, and it you know is that we're making the same kinds of investment choices we were before which I think matters a whole lot. And I really cannot understate, you know, the people on the other side of the table. If you don't trust that they are doing things the right way ethically and, you know, just in terms of their style and transparency and their, you know, I didn't get everything I wanted, nor should I from the deal, but I never felt like I was getting 
you know, anybody was trying to outmaneuver me or it was somehow a, a low transparency process. Everything was very fair. And that happens when you have ethical, honest, good people on the other side of the table. And that was the case both with the roll-up leadership and with the private equity leadership. Huge, huge difference maker. Oh, great. You, I guess, were in the somewhat fortunate position of having the materials you needed to get through that process because you were fundraising. I assume most of the things you were preparing for the fundraising translated pretty well to the to an exit process as well. Oh, absolutely. There's no question. So, I mean, to some extent, when you like all of hopefully like all of your portfolio companies, you're kind of raising all the time. So, to some extent, you you engineered the company to be able to do it. But even then, I will tell you what you know. Venture capital different diligence is is tough, but acquisition diligence is a different animal. It is, uh, it's all the same things multiplied by about twenty. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the, the spreadsheets alone, I think I had to buy a new hard drive just to contain the Excel document that we were working from. But I mean, you have different things. I mean, you have serious legal review in a way that you know it's not in house legal. It's not, you know, it's it's a big law firm doing a whole lot of work, looking at every word. It's quality of earnings analysis, which you know is pretty common in acquisitions. You don't really see that in venture capital and angel investing, right? Which yeah. is just a, and you know because we had been through the process with with you guys, we were very well prepared. And I'm not sure that's the case I mean, because venture South, I think, runs a pretty tight process on that front. Um, that you know, no matter what you do, the shift from fundraising to acquisition is significant. And if you're if you haven't been keeping good hygiene going along the way because you've had good investors that made you do it and a good board that made you do it, you're in you're in deep trouble. So <laughs> a lot of catching up, a lot of catching up we'd have to do in that scenario, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So so other than being well prepared and making sure you have people across the table from you that are ethical and, and good people, what else did you learn going through that exit process? Oh my gosh. I, well, and I'll come back to this. I mean, I know we were just finished talking about this in your last question, but the importance of financial and operational hygiene. I'm, I just cannot say enough about that. I mean, I'm kind of a process guy to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I remember. We, uh, kind of a, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of a finance. I like that stuff. Like, I'm yep. very, very comfortable with it. And even then, I mean, you know, I, I, it's one of those things where, you know, I think one of the best pieces of advice I got after our first round, we got the board together was going out and procuring a SaaS-specific revenue recognition platform, which sounds like a really small decision. Like, okay, well, you're, okay, piece of software to track spend revenue. I mean, why is that a big deal? If you try to do that later, when you're trying to get ready for acquisition, it would be a nightmare. Nightmare. And the amount, and we use SaaS Optics, which is now Maxio. Again, sounds like a small thing, but having really clean book, really clean processes does two things for us in this process that I learned are maybe maybe more important than anything else. One, you know the answers to everything quickly, right? There's nothing worse, I think, and probably this is the case for investors, but certainly for acquirers. If you are nervous or in doubt when someone asks you a question that they think is an obvious question, you're dead in the water. Like you can't not know your ARR by service or product. You can't not know what your, you know, what your cash out date is. You can't you know, you can't not know what the, you know, what percentage of your CS is service. I mean, you just need to know the answers to these basic operational and finance questions. Yeah. And, you know, even if you're not a finance person as a founder, having someone on the team who is, or having a system and process in place that can deliver those answers quickly is just absolutely critical. 
for getting through the process and you're preserving your own sanity. There's just no other way to get through it. Most important thing that I learned, period. No question about it. Okay. Interesting. I was not expecting SaaS revenue recognition software. I know it's pretty boring, right? But, yeah, but this, I tell you, this hygiene <laughs> stuff, Paul, I mean, it, and, you know, and again, I, I give you guys a lot of credit because I think you you asked for it in your process um, and we had it instituted, but I am shocked by founders that I talked to, even though some who were backed by pretty well-known West Coast venture capital that do not know some of the answers to these questions mm-hmm. or they're fudging them. It creates trouble for you later if you don't do it early. That's great. That's great. Great learning for entrepreneurs who perhaps are fundraising, but ought to be thinking about acquisition as well, keeping an eye out for those opportunities as they come in and, and being prepared for jumping on them when they do. This episode is sponsored by the Rolling South Fund. We're a family of funds focused on the unique startup opportunities in the Southern U.S. If you've ever thought about getting rich slow, well, that's what we do. And we have a lot of fun doing it. So please join us and we'll do good together. Let's shift gears and talk about life after acquisition. So that process took a little while and took some years off your lifespan probably, but at the end of it, it was a good result. Significantly more. Right. Uh, <laughs> than, than did when we started. Yeah. My photos um, proof. What has life been like after acquisition? What were the key things that you have had to do once the exit for the angels has happened? It is not what I expect. And the, the interesting thing about that is this is the second time I've sold a company. So my second venture, the first one was not venture backed, different kind of process, more of an inside strategic buyer for the first one. After this deal, especially in the first three months, it is a very strange feeling. I mean, it, it feels a little bit like, you know, th- there's something you should be doing that you're not doing, but you're not sure what that is. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it almost, and, you know, and, and, and speaking frankly, and I talked to a lot of other entrepreneurs about this, and it's quite common, actually, post-acquisition for founders to have some anxiety after the transaction for some time. And then I spoke to a, a, a guy who runs sessions for for leaders right afterward. And, you know, the idea that you're operating on this level 11 going into the deal. And obviously, you're trying to operate at a very high level all the time. But specifically, when you're trying to transact or raise a round, you're at level 11 for months and months and months. And then you go from a level 11 to like two, because then you go on vacation because you're tired from the round or the acquisition. And that kind of a swing is probably not really good for you in terms of emotional and, you know, it's, you know, rational behavior. And it, it takes several months. It took several months for me. And I've heard this story over and over again from other exited founders that it takes several months to kind of recover from that and find your footing again. So I think aside from all the, you know, op, the, the sort of the mundane stuff of what are you doing and how are you spending your time? And what are you working on? I think the 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 toll, psychological toll of operating at 11 and then making the switch to all of a sudden not being the founders is really tough. And the advice I would give to founders who are who are about to make that transition or thinking about it is, you know, you have to really pay attention to it afterward and figure out how to manage yourself through it because it's going to happen. It seems to be a consistent story from everyone. And in terms of my specific, that was even though I was pretty busy. So I didn't exit the business. I still have a job. So that's good. I did, I'm participating as an investor in the new entity, which which is great. Again, it's sort of like a startup and I'm running a good chunk of it, which is fun for me. So a lot of the same things that I was doing before, I'm doing now. There are a lot of things I don't have to do anymore, which are fantastic. 
like all of the hygiene stuff, all the financial hygiene, accounting, and legal stuff. There's a team that helps with that, which is an enormous benefit. I mean, it's that that part I love. And then there are other little things that you have to get used to. And you and I were talking about this before the call. You know, I don't have total autonomy over my own calendar anymore. So when you make that shift to former founder, uh, to you know, you know, you're part of a, a roll up. You know, all of a sudden. You know, you've got to weigh other people's needs in the company a little bit more than you're used to, even if you have a very senior role. So that's been that's been interesting. Oh, all in all, though, I think it gives me space to focus on the stuff that I'm really good at and the stuff that I enjoy and not on the things that I am barely competent at. <laughs> and finance and accounting are definitely in the barely competent category. I know enough to be dangerous, but I probably should not be doing it for money. So fortunately, there are people who have money. But yeah, that's my that's my post acquisition. Take on things. That's interesting. So I think you're not giving yourself enough credit on the finance and operational part, but I can also see why getting that off your plate is probably freeing up some time and in increasing yeah. your net level of happiness. Very interesting about the post-acquisition kind of just disruption and taking the break and getting back into it is not something that I really knew very much about or had heard from too many people. Yeah, so. Me either. And then the first thing, I, I picked up the phone and called a friend who had exited not long after the deal. And he asked me how I was doing. I said, well, it's, a, <laughs> it's kind of hard to explain. I should be ecstatic, and I am, and incredibly grateful in all the emotions you feel after this situation yeah. happens. And at the same time, you feel a little hollow. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's founder depression. It's like, it's like he knew there was a condition for it that's probably, yeah. maybe it's in the AMA journal or something. Where it's a common thing that people are aware of that after you walk away from this thing, that it feels like you, you gave away your child. And that leaves a little bit of a hole, even though it should make you very, very happy. So it it's uh, it, it's definitely a real thing, apparently, encountered by others. So it was nice to find a community of others who had heard of it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you found the support you needed to get through that. Yeah. In terms of sort of administrative life after acquisition, so you said you, you still had a job, you're running part of the company. How did it go in terms of keeping the team together and keeping the operations and keeping sort of the threat switch part of that alive? Well, we walked into a good situation, as I mentioned, because it was growth equity, because, I mean, they had no intention of messing with the team. In fact, they wanted us to do anything we possibly could to keep the team together. And, you know, at this point, you know, going into the beginning of the year, every change we have made to personnel has been stuff that would have absolutely occurred anyway. Like it has nothing to do with the acquisition. All the hires and departures are all as a, as, as a result of just decisions that make sense for growth of our business unit in the, in the context of the bigger issue of the bigger company. So I think a big piece of keeping the team together is that message making its way through. Because, you know, people, especially employees who have not been through an acquisition before, especially a startup acquisition, being very transparent is crucial and getting them in front of the new people and getting that cultural stuff going as soon as you possibly can. Because in the absence of information, I have found that people will make stuff up and it's usually not in your favor and usually not true. So if if we don't have an honest conversation with them about what is actually going to happen and what it might mean, what it's not going to mean, they'll make assumptions that, you know, because they saw in the news that private equity firms buy companies and then they fire everybody. And that is something that some private equity companies do. And getting out in front of it and saying, this is not that kind of deal, guys, right? There, this, there are deals like that. This is not one of them. So getting really, really focused on helping my team understand that, getting them excited about what would be possible in the context of the new business has been crucial. 
And you know, the integration thing is 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 really quite challenging. In our case, you know, you're talking about several different entities in other countries in some cases that all have their own cultures. Now, fortunately, these cultures are pretty pretty well aligned. I mean, it, it's obvious that there was some intentional intentional thinking on culture when the acquisitions were made. Mm-hmm. But, you know, our leadership team, um, I think, is really focused on trying to get people together in person as much as we possibly can and create some create some relationships. Because some integration stuff, you know, process, back office, systems, that just can take a while, no matter how hard you work at it and how well-intentioned you are. So the cultural and people integration of just getting to know everybody is the by far the most important thing that I think has been helpful in us keeping folks around. Very good. What would you say is the best improvement then in your situation now versus being a startup entrepreneur two years ago? Oh, oh it's the ability to reach a, a much, not just a bigger audience, but even, even in the niches where we were, our ability to penetrate those spaces in depth is radically different. I mean, and, and some of that is money, right? But not all of it. Some of it is, you know, we all realign to a new brand, which is Sign and Solutions. And, you know, you get attached to your own brand. I was attached to Threatswitch, but it's not like, you know, we were, it's not like Threatswitch was Coca-Cola, you know, so it wasn't that big of a deal to let that go in support of something that now, I mean, we're running advertisements at, at the global brand level and our product in the suite of the other products has becomes visible in that process. Every single one of these other role of companies effectively becomes a channel partner for us through which we can reach more customers. So that's the that is by far the most beneficial thing is the ability ability to take advantage of the scale and depth of the relationship. I mean, we go from you know whatever 100 customers to now a few thousand, and even just an enterprise, hundreds and hundreds of customers in several global markets. The ability to go have someone on the ground in the UK where we can actually sell something, which we've had interest in the UK before, but without that presence and history in an international market, can be very very difficult. To, to really get going, especially with an enterprise customer. So that's been absolutely huge. And we also just have a few things that we didn't have. Like we have a guy who's a data scientist. That's a hire I would have loved to have made on day one, but would never have been able to afford. You would have never let me do that, Paul. Yeah. You're not getting a data scientist. That's we didn't, we, now we have one. And he's awesome. <laughs> it's fantastic to have someone who can do things like lead prioritization and really look at the quantitative parts of the business that you know, for both the product and the operation that you just could never do as a small startup. So that's, that's been great. Yeah. It's transformative in just in every respect, being part of a larger organization like that. Yeah. 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 But what do you miss? Other than, other than having total control of my calendar. (laughs) Well, it sounds like the calendar is a big thing. Yeah. (laughs) Gosh, what do I miss? I think I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not playing to my host here. I kind of enjoy going out and meeting investors and seeing other sort of pitches and being in that ecosystem as intimately as I was. Because you pick up a lot of really good ideas. And I don't think people fully appreciate, you know, if you have, if you're in a good, it could be an institutional investor with a great portfolio or or angel. But if you're working that circuit, you just see a lot of stuff. And there are some, even some companies that are otherwise pretty terrible companies, (laughs) they will have some nugget in there that's just a fantastic idea. And you get to see all those things and borrow them along the way, which I think is a lot of fun. And so I kind of miss seeing what others are doing with the level of frequency that I had before. And so I try to stay engaged in that to the extent that I can. Yep. Uh, but I, I really do quite miss the startup ecosystem. 
and then and, and just being in the room and hearing all these wacky ideas, some good, some bad, but always learning something about where people are headed is, is a lot of fun. So I, I do miss that. And so one of my goals personally for the next year is to is to try to figure out a way for to re-engage in some of that just so that I I, I scratch that itch. I, I don't think that was planned to the host at all. I think I was going to suggest that as the answer too. <laughs> and I definitely would encourage you not to stay away from it for too long. There's a lot going on, especially in Charlotte, or particularly in Charlotte. There's, there's not only a cohort of exited entrepreneurs now in, in Charlotte, which there wasn't five, 10 years ago, but there's also a lot of that kind of communication across the ecosystem that is definitely improving. So just speaking locally to, to that, I would definitely encourage you to jump back into that time permitting and all the other stuff on your plate you know, let you do a little bit of doing that. That is definitely the plan. I'm I'm trying to chalk it up as professional development. I got to talk to my CFO and sell it. <laughs> you might have to <laughs> do that. Yeah. You might have to do that evenings and weekends if you're allowed to do anything. That's all right. That's all right. I'll do evenings and weekends work. But yeah. but yeah, that is, that is crucial. And I, I will plug one thing that I have done is I've, I've gotten involved in EO's accelerator program and I coach a group of startup entrepreneurs as part of that program, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, Brian Delaney, who ex- exits Skookum a few years back, he's he's one of the leaders of that, that effort, um, and Chambers involved and a few others. So that's been fantastic. But, you know, it's, I definitely need, need to keep it in my life one way or the other. Speaking selfishly, I hope that at some point in the future, you decide to have another go around on the entrepreneurial journey and we get to do this again. But it has been a pleasure being an investor in Threat Switch, obviously, it's been a pleasure receiving the distribution checks when we were no longer investors in Threat Switch as well. <laughs> but it's the journey as well as the destination that's been a pleasure to, to work with you on. So, John, thank you for all of that. And we wish you the very best of luck taking um, Threat Switch and, and the, the combined group to the next level. Could never have done it without great investors like you guys. So the the, the admiration is very mutual, I assure you. So thank you, Paul. Appreciate you. No, we'll, reconvene, we'll reconvene in a few years and do it again. All right. Thanks. This pod is supported by the Rolling South Fund, a venture fund for startup investors, and by Venture Carolina, a nonprofit focused on entrepreneur and investor education.